Welcome to episode three of A Just Transition, brought to you by RBS International. My name is Tim Phillips. If you've been listening to us for the first two episodes, well, thank you very much. And I hope you like what we're doing. And if you do, remember to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Go on, do it now. Hit that subscribe button because we've got some great episodes coming up in the next couple of months. And it's going to be a busy time with COP26. There's going to be a lot of noise. And we are here to help you cut through that noise. And also, if you like what we're doing, give us a review and help pass on the word. But... That's the future. We've got a job to do today. And so it's hello from me to the person who does all the hard work and heavy lifting around here. And that's my co-host, Bradley Davidson from RBS International. Hello, Bradley. Hi, Tim. It's good to be back. It is good to be back, isn't it? Now, Bradley, remind us what Just Transition is all about. Yes, of course. Welcome again to our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this summer and made the most of that fleeting sun if you're here with us in the UK. (laughs) We've launched a new podcast to bring together industry leaders as we discuss how private investment can tackle society's greatest challenges. We will explore a different topic each month and hope to share open and frank discussions about the challenges and opportunities presented by ESG. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we're excited to bring you with us on this journey as we head towards COP26 later this year. So, Bradley, what are we talking about? And more importantly, who are we talking to today? So if you have been with us since that first episode, we touched on the challenges our funds customers face as ESG frameworks and standards continue to evolve. Today, we're going to explore some of these standards in greater detail, but also take a step back to understand why consistent disclosures are so important as we head toward those environmental and social development targets that we're all working towards. To help us do this, I'm pleased to introduce David Marriage, Head of Disruption and Innovation for Asset Management at PwC, who we continue to work with to transform our own business. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Bradley. Um, Pleased to be here. So you kindly supported a NatWest Group event earlier in the summer. But for those listeners not familiar, could you tell us a little bit more about your role at PwC? Yeah, sure. So as the leader of global disruption and innovation for the asset market management sector, I focus on looking at essentially the macroeconomic trends and technology changes that are happening in the market and how they're going to apply um, to the sector. Obviously, one of those large trends that we're seeing is around ESG, and we're starting to see some you know, disconnects forming in that area and others that need to be considered as part of the journey we're all on. So, David, we're talking about reporting good today. Well, what is the problem with reporting good at the moment? I assume there is one. Yeah, so I think, you know, what's interesting is there's been a massive shift in the market requirement. You know, we've seen investors and consumers start to really take into account whether they're protecting the planet, whether they're protecting society with their investments and purchases. But the issue is it's it's really difficult to know what your real impact is. And the reason for that is that whilst the investment you're making in a PLC that might be a retail PLC could be fine from an ESG perspective, it's very difficult to know what the actual impact of their supply chains are. So being able to understand the full impact of your investment or the purchase you're buying is actually very, very difficult. And it's something that the market's struggling with generally, I think. Bradley, do you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a really interesting way to look at reporting at the moment. So it's to kind of bring it back to as you as an individual, before you make any purchase or you make any decision, you want to be armed with the facts. And and what David's describing there is the fact that we have this huge unknown across the market. And so it's really difficult for market participants to be able to make those informed decisions. So, you know, reporting good is incredibly important so that we can create that efficiency that we need, but it's just not there at the moment. 
But David, the market participants, many of whom will be our audience today, still have to make decisions, don't they? They still have to act. So what are they doing at the moment? It's really difficult to know what the right thing to do is in this market. Mm. And there's a huge amount of ambiguity. And if we just thought, you know, taking a bit of a step back, if you look at the actual problem here, the problem is this shift in market demand. This the, the, who's asking the question, essentially. So as an investor, I used to look for a particular return at a particular risk level. And as a consumer, I used to look for the highest quality product at the lowest price. For the investor, it's now moved to the same. I want my financial return at a particular risk, but I also want to protect the planet and society. We've seen you know, significant funds flow through ESG mandates with ranges of 70 trillion to 100 trillion of funds. And from a consumer perspective, it's I want the highest quality product at lowest price still, but I also want to take into account the impact from a planet. And historically, because we've had the previous ask, what it's meant is that we've focused on the financial data. And that financial data is now pretty good. You know, we have full supply chain transparency because the last invoice in our company captures the entire costs and profits of the supply chain. One neat number. We roll all of those numbers up into the financial statements. Those financial statements are standardised, audited with a standard approach. Those numbers are then shared democratically with the market on a given day. So everybody has access to that information. The issue is on the ESG side is that we don't have the full supply chain data because it's not captured in terms of carbon footprint or modern slavery or whatever we might be looking at from an ESG perspective. In the organisations that are reporting their ESG position, often it's a, a sustainability report. Those Reports are interpreted by the market, so analysts from Bloomberg and Refinitiv and the like, and those interpretations are quite different depending on which house you buy the data from. So once that data is complete, it's not audited in the same way as the financial data, so there's no independent view of accuracy in terms of the data, and it's drip-fed into the market. So we have this data that's price-sensitive, it moves the share price in the same way the financial data does, but it hasn't got the same quality, if you like, integrity, timeliness, access, comparability as the financial data. And so organisations are almost focusing on the fact that the market's broken in terms of the data flows and trying to deal with the symptoms of the broken market at the moment, as opposed to really focusing on firstly fixing the market from a data perspective and then acting on effective data. Bradley, you're always apologising for the alphabet soup that there is in sustainability, but This is kind of why we have it, isn't it? This is your moment now, because there are major standard-setting initiatives going on so that we have more reliable data. Can you take me through them? Yes, absolutely. ESG reporting isn't an easy subject to break down, and that's perhaps why many of our customers and other market participants are left confused by the current landscape. Our listeners will be pleased to hear that I won't break down every single framework that there is, otherwise (laughs) we'd be here for some time. So what I'm going to do is remove the S and the G for now and focus on those environmental frameworks, because that's where we're seeing markets really put their attention as we continue to see policymakers recognise the immediacy needed for the climate emergency. So over the past year, maybe 18 months now, regulators have begun to recognise that systemic risk that's presented by climate change and really just the impacts that that may have on the global economy. Earlier this year, Andrew Bailey, who's the Bank of England governor, took action by launching the central bank's first climate stress test and the ECB have done a similar exercise. Now, the results of these pieces of analysis will give us that kind of macro view when we're looking at an industry as a whole. But what we're seeing now is these frameworks such as TCFD or SFDR, 
which I'll go into, but I'm sure our customers are familiar with, to provide that granularity more akin to the financial reporting that we see across the market and that David referred to earlier. So SFDR, or the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, operationalizes the EU taxonomy. The EU taxonomy is, at its heart, a list of what good looks like in terms of activity. So it's that, what is green economic activity? How do we define that? Because we know that ESG has many nuances, and so that really sets it out for the European market. For our funds customers, they're now required to classify any investments that are marketed in Europe as Article 6, which we call grey. Essentially, there's no ESG or environmental objectives or characteristics to that fund itself. We have Article 8, which we call light green, nice and inventive. And what that means is that there's environmental characteristics. And then you have dark green or Article 9, which is that there really is an environmental objective to that fund. And that's really informing those investment decisions. I'd say the latter is probably more akin to a kind of impact investment portfolio. Now, for the rest of the world, as supported by the outcomes of the G7 summit earlier this year, we're looking at TCFD or Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures or PCAF, that Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, to standardize environmental reporting on that more granular level that we now need. What I would say is taking a step back is that we as a bank are going through the same process with our customers. And so we have great empathy for the traversing of several frameworks and reporting requirements that they're having to go through right now. That's why in many ways that we're sharing through exercises like this, it's about, as I said at the beginning, taking our customers with us to really share what we've learned as we go through that process. Recent moves such as the SASB and IRC merger to create that value reporting foundation hold promise for convergence globally, which will help market participants as we're all speaking the same language. But it's some way off. And realistically, when we look at IFRS and how long it took to come into standard practice across the globe, it took around 20 years from probably inception to actually being a standard. So don't hold your breath for that to come anytime soon. And that's why the reporting landscape remains a bit of a minefield. But we're definitely looking towards COP26 to help solve those issues. But again, we really do have empathy for our customers. David, I know that we've spoken about this before. What are your thoughts on the current convergence of frameworks? And really, do you think it solves the problem? I think it will in due course. I think the issue is that the timeline it will take to get to that point. And as you said, standard set is by the very nature of them having to get consensus and everybody bought in and, and how it's going to be deployed, et cetera, take, take a time. And even if that's sort of three to five years, there'll then be an implementation period, during which time the sort of alphabet soup continues to pervade if we don't start to think about how to act a bit more collaboratively across the market. And so I, I think one of the key things is that in terms of the alignment of the standards, but also what's going on in the market, is to really start to think about what is the critical data that we need to collect? Where does that data reside? There's a lot of data within companies that is actually pretty useful in terms of understanding the real footprint. But at the moment, a lot of the analysis is done on these qualitative reports. So what data could be shared more freely uh, by organisations? How can the data become more controlled and standardised, even just in the flow between companies before we actually get to real standards? So it's about, I think, working in lockstep with people like Clara Barbie at the SSB as she starts to coalesce the different metrics and frameworks into the standards, but making sure that actually as we're starting to move in that direction, that the data is already being collected in the right source of structure, rather than wait for the standard to be set and then start thinking about how we're going to collect that data. Because obviously that enables us to bring in the time frame for the transition that we need to see. 
And then just a quick follow-up. So what do you think the barriers to collaboration are? Are we at a stage at the moment where if a company discloses more, they potentially look worse off because they've found issues? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think, you know, at the moment, the more you look, the worse you look. So the more I look through my supply chain and find things and report them, I look worse than someone who hasn't bothered. So we need to start to really think about how we make sure that the transparency is rewarded in terms of the way we think about ESG. I think there's also a piece around comparability across market participants of different scale. At the moment, the analysts are focused on the large organisations. That means that arguably there isn't democratic access, if you like, to the market for all participants in the same way there is if you were just basing it on financial data. I think the other piece we need to really think about as a market and, and how we start to bring together the supply side, if you like, from an investment perspective to the demand side is how do we actually codify and frame up what investors and consumers ask for and are wanting. At the moment, there's a relatively weak signal from the demand side. It's an ESG fund, but as we've discussed, ESG is nebulous and ambiguous. So if we can create a much clearer relationship between investor, what their investments are and what they care about, we start to create value pools that can be targeted by clients. If we know that there's, let's say, for round numbers, 100 trillion of assets that are becoming ESG and 90% of people care about climate, that creates a 90 trillion value pool in the market. Now, if you're rated red and you move that to green, that might increase your share price by 10, 15, 20%. If we can get that sort of mechanism in the market, what we create is a business case for transition. At the moment, that business case doesn't really exist because the ask is nebulous and we can't tie it back to the, the share price. So I think it's those sorts of things that if we start to really join them up, we create a number of elements that starts to drive the right behaviors going forward. And to your point around then, you know, those organizations that aren't necessarily focused on looking through, part of that framework can be if you're only looking at the impact of the top level organization, you can only ever be read. So it's those sorts of constructs where, you know, without the supply chain, without information that gives more transparency, you're rated worse than someone who is looking. Practically, David, is there anything that market participants who are our listeners today can do to try and run ahead of regulation and force those standards of transparent reporting? Yeah, I think, you know, there are a number of organisations and charities and other businesses that are starting to look at how they collaborate across the market. And so there are a number of initiatives at the moment that are starting to look at how to make the market collaborate more closely. We have an issue around collaboration in that if groups of organisations go off and collaborate together and create another version, we end up with multiple versions of those because everybody is still competing against these symptoms of a broken market. Mm. I think what we need to get to is a, almost a coalition of the market because it's a systemic problem where we start talking that consistent language and collecting the data. So I think organisations like Rewild Earth are starting to get back in the market because they are community interest company, so they're not trying to profit out of this. What they're trying to do is create a consistent framework that links things like the SDGs and the World Economic Forum data together, such that you create a framework that everybody can use, both from a demand side and a supply side. And it's those sorts of activities that if clients are keen to start to look above the parapet and start to think about how they connect into a sort of a broader framework, getting involved in those sorts of initiatives is a helpful step in the right direction. So, David, you seem like a person who speaks his mind. We've got COP26 coming up and we're asking all our guests at the moment just to say, on this subject, in a perfect world, what would you want COP26 to deliver? Quite a bit. But if we focus on, the, if we focus, I suppose, on the important, <laughs> the sort of really important game-changing elements, if you like, of what could happen at COP26, there's a big disconnect between 
what's happening for investors and consumers and what's actually going on in the markets. And so we've got this situation where people are picking and choosing which metrics to use and frameworks and which analysts or organizations to use in terms of their, their data. And so when somebody's investing, they're not actually sure of the impact they're having. So I think one of the key things is the realization actually that the joining of demand and supply is critical and making it very clear you know, from a consumer perspective, an investor perspective, what the market cares about with a view to creating the right drivers in the market around the value pools that that will demonstrate. And I think if we can start to create a consistency of approach around demand and what, you know, capturing that information and then consistency of approach through supply chains. So ideally audited data at each level of the supply chain that can be used by all participants. So we only produce the data once rather than a thousand times. And that framework can be the outcome of Glasgow I think we start to move into the direction of actually moving the needle in terms of climate change and social change that the investors are increasingly want to see. If, on the other hand, we don't move in that direction and we end up with sort of a Paris Implementation Plus, which there is a risk that that's what COP26 becomes, we miss the opportunity of essentially connecting the most powerful force in the world to make the difference, which is the financial markets and the capital markets more broadly, with the demand of what the community and society wants. And that's essentially where trust really fails. So I think that ability to connect the actual impact of an investor and a consumer back to their decision maker, i.e. us, will be the most powerful outcome of COP26. And that would be the thing that I think would help us reverse climate change and protect society. Now, you mentioned there was a risk of it becoming a Paris Agreement Plus style outcome. So if we look at a more realistic world, what do we really need from COP26? I think it's that the realisation that the capital markets have been a destructive force in many ways because it's only had one measure. It's had the financial measure. And so when you're looking at you know, highest quality, lowest price, or you're looking at highest return for particular risk, you're not taking into account the impact on planet and society. We need to create the realisation that rather than force companies to do the right thing or create activities for individuals to participate in such that they can make a difference like recycling and things. We really need to create the right drivers in the market. And I think the real need is if you do the right thing, your share price goes up and you can only do that with creating a level playing field in this space. So I think that's what we need. And is that realistic? I'd like to think there's an opportunity to do that because there's a growing realisation that the piecemeal approach that we're seeing across the market is actually not going to do anything. But we'll see. Well, I hope you get your wish, David. We're not long to wait now. Thank you very much for talking about it today. Thanks, both. And that is more or less all the time that we have for episode three of A Just Transition. I just want to say thank you very much for listening from all of us here. First of all, from Bradley. Bradley, great work today. You did some really hard work. Thank you very much for doing it. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, everyone. And from everyone at RBS International Behind the Scenes who helps put this together, and from myself, Tim Phillips, goodbye as well, and we will see you next time. And you have remembered to subscribe, haven't you? Go on. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.